There's a humility factor, too, to just to be quite frank. Hell, I cried at home. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. There were times that I just said, man, I'm gonna, this thing's going to fail. Uh, I wouldn't worry about me failing. I can get a job. That's That wasn't the deal. But I couldn't fail the people that invested the money in the deal, and I couldn't fail the people that I worked with every day. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He's lucky he wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Will Chase. Will is the former CEO of Triumph Bank. The number of new banks opening around the United States has drastically decreased since the 2008 financial crisis, and I wanted to find out why. Triumph Bank was started right before the financial crisis of 2008 with just a few million dollars, and it recently sold for over $130 million. I had a great time with Will in this episode where you will hear what it actually looks like to quit your job at 50 and go all in on a startup bank, even if you don't know it'll make it. How to win in the service industry when big banks keep acquiring market share and increasing their tech spend. Being $5 million in the hole and working your way out of it after the 2008 financial crisis. Why it makes little sense to start a bank these days, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Will Chase. Will, great to see you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yes, sir. You started Triumph. You and all the stakeholders involved started Trump in 2006, right? Correct. Well, actually, we began, uh, my first day on the job was April 1st of 2005. 
uh, because you what happens when you start one of these uh, companies is you have uh, no revenue, no employees. And so there were uh, Mike McCarver and myself. Uh, we were the two management guys. And then we had uh, 13 outside directors. Everybody put some money in to start it. And you just hustle every day. And uh, we were able to open the doors on June the 5th of 2006. So it took a long time to to get up and going. Part of that was that there were uh, 14 applications ahead of ours at the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions, who's our charter issuer. Uh, and then you have the Federal Reserve Bank to become as part of our holding company. So it just took a while to happen. What it feel like starting a bank in 2005 and then going through the 2008 crisis? Well, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we had a spreadsheet and it basically was yellow light, red light, green light. And what that was, was that it was just, let's say there are 50 things that have to be completed. And of the 50 things, they have to be assigned. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, and then you get to the point where you finally open. It's uh, a little scary. I left a good job with a good company. Uh, you just make a real prayerful decision. First of all, is this what you want to do? And then secondly, it's not like a part-time job. I mean, this isn't a, you know, you're not a, a ride hailing service. Uh, you're all in or you're all out. Uh, and so not only that, so I had no income. I had to take money out of the bank to invest it into this enterprise along with everybody else. Uh, and we got paid a little bit as we went along. And that was, once we got started, it was okay. Uh, then you have to go raise, we raised $23 million, I believe, 23 or 25 to get started, because that was one of the requirements to, to get our charter was to raise sufficient capital. And so uh, you just, so every day you have to be hyper-focused on whatever it is. And, and that's, that's, you just, you, you, it's, a, it's a different process uh, because there's so many regulations and you have to make sure that you can, you know, do all these things. You have to have software. Uh, that's approved by regulatory people. You just can't run the bank off of a spreadsheet. Uh, so th there's just there's a lot that goes into it, and uh, it was a it was a challenging, a uh, very exciting. Uh, lost sleep during uh, some nights. I gained a lot of weight doing it because you have to have breakfast some days, lunch some days, and dinner some days with people because you have to raise the money and you got to you know go talk to people and ask them to write a check. So. So you had to come up with, which I saw that number was somewhere between, was around $20 million, I guess. Is that the standard, what you have to do to get your own bank charter? Uh, it, at that time, it was. It, the number used to be lower. They required us to get more because the regulatory world, they didn't know what was going to happen, but there were some people in the world that said, the world's going to be, there's something going on in the world. So they raised the the amount of money we had to have, and that was okay. We we were able to we accepted the challenge and were able to raise the money. Today, oh, I, I don't think they let you do it for less than thirty million. It may be, it just depends on your business plan. But I can't see a regulatory group letting somebody start a brand new bank with less than thirty million dollars. Probably when you said the the environment felt a little sketchy back then, and so they made you raise more. Does that environment feel sketchy in the same way today? There, a little bit of it is sketchy today where, where it's a different sketchy. If you remember back then, I mean, uh, people just built houses left and right and 
the the number of houses that we built was well in excess of of the demand. And so today it's the exact opposite. What is where the world is today is the Federal Reserve Bank lowered interest rates and flooded the world with money because of the, and I call it two pandemics. If you remember a year ago, we were high-fiving, thinking that, oh, great, you know, the virus is over. Well, there was there was virus two that showed up. And so hopefully this spring we'll be able to high-five and it'll be over. But from the world of credit and interest rates, the world is out of sync. It's way out of whack from where it should be. So I have a checking account at a, at a well-known uh, bank here in town. I get paid one one-hundredth of one percent on my deposit, on my little money market checking account. If you've gone back 20 years ago, if we went back to when we started Triumph Bank, that would have been, we probably paid 4%. So rates have collapsed, the world's out of sync, and then the Federal Reserve Bank and the, and the U.S. Treasury have flooded the world with money. So that all has to be resolved in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And things are not static. How do you see things playing out on that path to be resolved? Oh, I think there'll be a recession of some variety. I think it's going to come sooner rather than later. The economy right now is doing very well still. Inflation is 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 very high. And the way the Federal Reserve Bank has always squelched uh, inflation is they turn around and raise interest rates. But if you're raising interest rates from 0% to 1%, I'm not sure that's going to have you know, the impact that they're going to be looking for. So I see more increases in interest rates. And a lot of the world is highly leveraged. We have a whole different world today than we did uh, 16 years ago. Uh, The student loan debt, it's a trillion dollars. It's more than the combined credit card balances in our country. So it's folks your age, uh, my children's age, uh, who, who have this debt overhang and it's got to be dealt with. I mean, it's, it, it was a, an issue before, but it's a, it will become a much larger issue, number one. And then number two, uh, can companies that, have, that are uh, highly leveraged, and there's a lot more leverage in the system now, can they sustain you know, a 200 basis point increase in interest rates? That's, that is yet to be determined. And going back to the beginning, so you were talking about a path into the future of where we're at now, and you said some form of, of a recession. So you're saying mm-hmm. that interest rates will continue to increase. People will not be able to meet their debt obligations. People will become more unemployed. People will have to face the credit card debt that they, I mean, the student loan debt that they have. Things will get funky and then they'll correct themselves. Is that what you're saying? That's what, that's what it always happens at the end of the day. It's not that people will just default. It's just if you have a lot of student loan debt and you've got to pay $750 a month, that decreases your ability to qualify for buying a house, buying a car, or whatever. So it's just over the last two years, it's all been deferred. There's nothing that's that you had to pay. And the interest did not accrue on it. And so suddenly, it's going to happen. You, the, the people who are obligated on those debt instruments are going to have to begin paying April 1. And so it's simply a matter that interest rates were too low too much money got injected into the system to react to the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously one could loop in other things as well. And so then as a result, 
you know, we're continuing to experience that pain and things had been on a, a bull run for a long enough time. So valuations were too high. People were spending more than what made sense from a book value or financial value standpoint. And obviously it's just going to correct itself. It does. I don't, there's not going to be like a crash, but I mean, there has to be some kind of correction. Uh, I hate for the stock market to correct uh, for me personally, because, you know, I I don't have a job right now. So that money is what I'm going to live off of. And it goes down 20% and you get, or whatever the percentage is, you get a little anxious. Yeah. But it went went up 20 before. So I mean, I can't complain. Right. So going back to the beginning, so you were in your 50s when you went on as CEO of Triumph Bank when y'all launched it in mm-hmm. 2005. Is that right? I just turned 50, yes. What was that like when you're 50 to leave your job, stability, borrow money or put money into a bank and not take a paycheck for a period of time? Well, I had two kids in private colleges and universities. Uh, so what's well, okay. Uh, you just, you know, uh, just like anything else you, you in life, you just make the best prayerful decision that you can. And so the process I went through that I, one of my friends who's a minister has given me over the years a great formula to use, uh, which is that basically, hey, Lord, this is what I want to do. If this is not what I'm supposed to be doing, uh, put up a barrier. And quite frankly, there were no barriers. And for people who know me generally, if I'm in, I'm all in. So you just, you just, you, 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 you know, how did somebody start, decide to start Microsoft one day or, or how does somebody begin to start a, a business in something that's, that's almost virtually unheard of, which is uh, to use a technology based on the internet uh, to do interviews with people. <laughs> and seriously, I mean, so they're, they're all, somebody invented a cell phone at some point in time. So they, they, uh, they didn't, they just did it, went and did it in their garage. If you know the story of Ping golf clubs, uh, Karsten Ping was an engineer and made this putter in his garage and he quit his job and started a company. It's a worldwide massive enterprise. Yeah. But you, but, but you just, you, you either, you have to have enough faith, enough confidence in what you're doing that you just go for it. You have to be focused. I think focus is, is uh, under underappreciated lots of times in a world you don't have to be very smart. Uh, I can tell you that the banking business is the simplest, most direct business uh, to be in. And you, you don't have to, you just don't have to be uh, a Harvard MBA and a PhD to, to be successful in that business. So that kind of worked well for me with my history major, because I, I don't have an MBA or anything like that. And I'm a liberal, I was a liberal arts college graduate. So I got, I learned banking and then I had this one-time opportunity and th- these opportunities don't come along very often. So when I started in banking, there were uh, almost 18,000 commercial banks. So that was in 1978. So you add all the banks that were started, all the new ones, the ones that were taken away. When we sold Triumph, I think there were like 4,800 banks left in the country. So there were only 4,800 CEO jobs, and I had one of them. So I always took it. It was a great privilege to have that job, and therefore, I needed to give it my all. So that's just, that's, that's how, I mean, it's how you do it, and you just jump in and just say, I'm going to give this my all. I saw that before 2010, 
about uh, Hunter Banks were opening up each year. And since, as of 2015, there was only three new banks since 2010. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I know the 2008 crisis has a big effect on that. And you referenced there were 14 applications ahead of years before you opened in 2005. But why have things changed? The economics of beginning a brand new bank uh, are no longer in play. And I think there are several reasons. Number one. What do you, so you mean financially it's not worth it anymore? Uh, finan- it's not because here's what the, if you think about what we did, it's a great example. So we've got two people who quit our jobs. We hired three more people. So there are five of us. We have no money coming in. All five of us could have gotten a job anywhere pretty much in the banking business. We're very experienced people at that point in time, pretty good at what we did. So you, there's a personal risk. Then you have to go raise all the money. Uh, then you have to be able to go through the process of having the, the, pro, the, the interesting thing about a bank startup is that, that, that you have this period. It's called the in-organization period. So you, you have an idea. I don't have a charter. You're spending money every day. Had you raised that $23 million or $30 million? When you first started, or had no. y'all how much did y'all raise? Uh, we raised about five hundred thousand dollars just to kick it off. So you quit your job, and this other person quit their job mm-hmm. to start this bank, and you had two kids in private college or private school, and you were fifty, and and you had only raised five hundred thousand of that twenty plus million. Correct. Okay. So you go through uh, that process and so you lose money. Then when you start a bank, so you get your charter and then you begin. You've raised the 20 or 30 million dollars, however much money you needed to raise, but you're still losing money every single day because I'm paying for technology, space and and more people. So we started out with 14 people, but then uh, we quickly hired 10 more. So we're up to 24 within 90 days of June the 5th. So uh, you and you can't. There's not enough revenue in the banking business that will allow you to pay for that. So you have your 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 in organizational losses. Then you have your losses from we call it the startup period, which gets you back to break even. And then you have to earn all that money back. Can I double down here for a second? Sure. So you're just burning money. Five million dollars is what we burned, and you have no clue how it's going to shake out. I mean, obviously, you have an idea, which is why you did it. Is there a blueprint for that? <laughs> well, there are There are a lot of people who have done this. And yes, you can do all the financial models in the world. That's why you, you have to, uh, in my opinion, just this is Will's way of looking at it. You have to make the best prayerful decision that you can because there are two personalities or two models for people who do this. One is the build and flip people. So what they do, you get in the money, you build the bank up, uh, and then you sell it for this supposedly very large price to you know a big bank somewhere. When you say supposedly, are you talking about the story, the embellishment that you're getting when you're trying to raise the money? Uh, well, if you're the if you're yeah, you'd be getting the story if you're the purchaser. If you're the seller, you're given the story, and right. the story is fine. But the issue comes down to for build and flip to work. The all the moons, planets, and stars all have to line up, and then somebody comes along and needs to buy it. 
uh, I am not a build and flip person. My idea was the company would, would go on forever. I would not be there forever, obviously. But if you set it up and you run a really good company, it can be self-sustaining and perpetuating. I don't have to be there. And then maybe you sell it, maybe you don't. So, But the idea of your goal every day is to run the best institution that you can. And you're not static. You're, you're, you're out there trying to figure out. Uh, part of my job as the CEO is to uh, is to look around the corner before you get there. I mean, that's that's part of what you're trying to do is to is to say, hey, we can put the accelerator down. But if you're a build and flip model, you always have the pedal down. But that's not always the the best thing to do in the banking industry. So, so you never thought you were going to sell? Oh, for me, uh, well, I ran it as if we were never going to sell it. With the idea that if somebody walks up and wants to buy it, then then it it, it would be sold. What so, about were there any equity distributions at any point, or is your money tied? Uh, in? Well, what we did, yes, and 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 so if you think about a, a model, so all the money. I'm going to answer a question. I've got to take a little segue first. So we lost this $5 million. So I have to make up the $5 million. Then I have to add money to the the stockholders' equities you go along. And then part of what we did is we went along because some people were saying, hey, you know, if you're not going to sell the bank, then what are you going to do? Well, we've repurchased shares. You bought their and shares. And I think we, yeah, we bought, we bought, I think we uh, repurchased about, Ten million dollars worth of of people's stock, about half. Well, the original, but see, we did a couple of additional add-ons. Plus, we were adding earnings every year. So, right. so the the fi- I think the final stockholders' equity was about ninety million dollars. So, we only raised in total. I think it was so we we raised forty two. We bought in ten, so that's thirty two. So the difference between those two is sixty something million dollars, and that's how much money we made uh, for our partners. Yeah, when when people got in and at the beginning, did they think it was going to be a flip, or did they think it was a long term deal, or did they not even really have enough clarity? Well, I, I think everybody. If, if you think about startup banks, uh, when we started Triumph, there were three local banks that have been sold. Uh, I don't think any of those banks really started with the idea that they were going to sell, but for various reasons, they all sold. Uh, and at that point in time, the total of all the money that for the purchase price for those three banks was about $125 million. So there were people who had recently, hey, I'm gonna, we sold our bank. I have this money. And look, here's, a whole, here's another group that wants to start a bank. So you have a group of people that are... Uh, uh, have had recent pretty good experiences, and so they say, "Hey, we're gonna well here here's another opportunity uh, to potentially make some money." So the banking business is a compound machine. What the what banking is about is taking in capital, taking care of the customers. They need a place to put the money. They need to borrow money. Whatever we facilitate transactions, we do a lot of different things for customers, and then to take that and run the, the bank profitably enough to add to the net worth via profits, and then you have to keep compounding that money over a long period of time. That's the real key. That's why a build and flip doesn't. It's it's nothing wrong with it. It's a it's a it's a valid model. It's just the compounding of the money is what the real key to the banking business is because over a long period of time, 
Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> uh, it's a big deal. And the banking business is designed specifically to compound the money. That should be every bank CEO's mantra. I can tell you it's not for uh, most of them that I know. Uh, that's not how they look at it, but that's how I looked at it. And I think that we did okay. So if you take away the return on capital or return on investment and the time duration and all those things, it sounds like only a certain kind of person would want to go through that kind of hell for those many years to hope to get something like this off the ground. Is that a fair statement? Uh, probably so. How'd you do that personally? Well, uh, you know me, I, I think, fairly well, and I have a, 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 I have a very strong belief in uh, the Bible. I'm a Christian. Uh, and so we just, I just said, Lord, if this is where I'm supposed to be, then, then we would show up every day and, and just do it. It was a long haul to get to profitability, but here's kind of a number. We had our first year that we were profitable, we made $832,000 pre-tax. We had 12 consecutive years of increasing earnings every year thereafter. And you just you just go in, and so a great way to look at the banking business is to say, you know, you you literally can drive down the street, you go down Poplar Avenue, and there are a jillion businesses. And so the question is, does that particular business bank with us? And maybe the answer is no. Well, maybe I need to go introduce myself to them and go talk to them and they can be a customer. And why would they want to be a customer? And the why is because we have great service. Uh, our rates are very good. And I believe in the golden rule. I'm a very firm believer in treating people uh, the way that I would like to be treated. So when you started that bank, when you quit your job and when you bought in and along these other stakeholders, what opportunity did you see in the market at that time? Okay. So there were three local banks that have been purchased. The economy was pretty good. One of the things actually that helped us was this time period that it took us a longer period of time to get started. We missed the peak of the lending. So what happened was, so for example, we started in, in on June the 5th of 2006. Uh, June of 2006 was the month in which the national housing market peaked. So some, some of the crazy loans had already been made, and then it only took 20 months for the world to almost unpeel financially. It did not take very long at all. So, but we were a little, we were uh, in a different position. We've actually been very blessed because we might, the, the, we might have missed some deals that we otherwise might, maybe we would have, maybe we would have loaned the money. Number one, then number two, our business model being different that we're in for the long haul. So one of the, there was a bank that had uh, some financial issues during the Great Recession. In fact, they had quite a few of them. They had some real issues, actually, because the board's determination was you need to go make X number of dollars of loans to home builders. And there's nothing wrong with home builders, great people to lend money to. But guess what? That was the wrong time in the cycle in which to go to force it to to take three times your net worth and put it into loans to home builders. It just didn't make any sense. Our model being a more oriented towards uh, business loaning money to businesses was was it was just a little bit different. Uh, we could be a little. We just didn't bank everybody. I mean, it's a good was way that to your, was it. that was that your plan from the start, or was that? 
your personal no, plan. Well, I mean, the 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 board charged me with coming up with the business plan, and I, we came up with a, a model. Uh, and it was the primary focus was on making loans to businesses, home builders, for example, and real estate developers. They're business people too, and and they're wonderful customers, great people. It was just at that point in the cycle, if you looked at all the information. Uh, so in Shelby County, somebody would say, "Why do we have six thousand houses permitted and under some some variety of construction in the Memphis area when the average takedown of houses was three thousand per year?" I mean, it just you could see it coming. It was just a matter of kind of you know what you say. And then the times were horrible. I mean, the Great Recession. Nobody envisioned anything like that. You know, there were all kinds of new words that popped up, you know, what toxic mortgages and collateralized debt obligations. There were loans that were being made and the, the country of Iceland was buying them. I mean, why was Iceland buying, you know, loans uh, by, by credit card debt, you know? Was there ever a point where you thought you might not make it? Well, there was one point in time when when we just said, you know, Lord, I just don't know exactly how we're going to do this because we were looking around trying to say, hey, if we can't raise any more capital and we're not going to be profitable, what are we going to do? And what is the regulatory world going to say? Because the issue at that point in time was the regulatory people want every bank to have more capital. It almost was unrealistic, the pace that you would have to add capital to your balance sheet versus the capital that you're spending in the deficit. Correct. So we're almost we're almost at break even, but they want you to to have a whole bunch of capital so that you can cover the last of your loss period. Plus then how are you going to grow? And so it, it all I mean their questions were 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 correct. So we so we came up with something. We were, we were pretty good at coming up with reports and stuff. So we came up with a spreadsheet that said we'll we will be profitable within so many months. And part of it was that the interest rate structure also collapsed at that time. So that was the first time the Federal Reserve, you know, flooded the world with money. And so there, when you, if you take that, that, so interest rates collapsed again. So we might've been paying, actually we were, we were paying almost 6% on some certificates of deposit and the going rate was 2%. So we came up with the spreadsheet and said, Here's when those things roll off the books. We think that they'll renew at this rate. And so uh, it all worked the way that we said we would do it. We then had another capital raise, which was successful. And then that we were off to the races. That, that allowed us to be profitable the next year after that, which had been 2010. Uh, and so we made a, well, that's when we made our $832,000. Is there anything that you saw at the beginning that actually turned out to be accurate? Yes, there is no doubt that if you run a business, if you have uh, some some mantras that are good mantras, you can you can win uh, anytime. Uh, number one was I believe I'm a great believer in the golden rule. I really, if you treat people the way you'd like to be treated, uh, that would be great. Think about how just think about the general level of customer service today. And how poor it is generally across the world. So 15 years ago, it was it was okay, but today it's even worse. So we're just hypersensitive that man, we get we have customers and they have needs, and a lot of the people in in our plan, we knew the customers. We we've been in banking for a long time, 
So we knew the people. We knew that if somebody said, hey, the world looks like it's falling apart, but I can get involved in a new business, then look what I can do. So, for example, the rental house business. Our competitors thought we had lost our minds. We were financing investors who were buying all these foreclosed houses uh, for pennies on the dollar on the courthouse steps. I remember hearing our customers say how stupid we were. Uh, Our competitors just say how stupid we were. Well, if you've seen the value of houses that went up over 12 consecutive years through, you know, December 31st of last year, our customers were pretty smart to buy them. Yeah. So, uh, and we financed them. And and uh, there's a whole new industry out there that that was created, and and we helped do it. We were not doing much financing in that part of the world because all those rental houses now are bought by large companies, PE firms, whatever else. They pay cash. They don't even think about financing anymore. So it's a it was we were we were kind of revolutionary in in what we did. It was a short term deal, uh, but we had a ton of home loans with some really great investors who've been in the business forever. Is there anything that that was a priority or you had clarity on that ended up not being true? That's a good question. Yes. The retail component of what we try to do in terms of retail banking, you know, the physical office, the teller lines and all that other uh, stuff that, that you would historically do in a startup bank. The need for independence that we had on that activity was much less. And it, it's continued on the banking business since then. So that's a trend that you feel for certain, even through data and external information, but then also through your own experience, you just feel like it's just dissipating. It is. Uh, I think that retail banking, as we know it today, with all these offices, will be gone in 10 years. I guess, are you saying from your standpoint, Y'all could have invested capital differently or better by not focusing on those things from the start. Well, no, it would. Well, the technology was not available at the time, so the technology we have today that would allow you not to have that business model it exists today. It didn't then, and we really thought that we would probably end up uh, with you know six, eight, ten retail offices, and we made a conscious decision after a while that that four was all we needed. We did not need uh, any any other ones because the world was just changing in terms of the technology platforms and the customer's acceptance of them. So I guess what you're saying is you were a high-touch bank from the start, high-touch on service, and physical presence was a big focus of yours. And after a short period of time, you realized that, that was not necessary nor needed nor a good use of funds. So then that changed. But obviously your book or your book value and the value of the bank is contingent on deposits. And so did that affect your strategy and targeting certain types of clients to then give you leverage to grow the bank? Uh, yes. One of the the things that, that community banks who start like we did, they rely heavily on certificates of deposit. Certificates of deposit, for example, are a dying uh, piece of the banking business. It's a generational deposit product that is that is much more suited to your parents, people my age, and then my parents because that was that was a, a big deal for them to have a, a certificate of deposit. Well, today, very they, that's not a big component. A big component is just have a money market account. 
because you can have a money market account because the instantaneous uh, access to your money is a bigger deal, especially like for people in for for you for your generation. You know, it, it's just you're so much more accustomed to why do I want to tie my money up? You know, uh, the world moves very quickly, so they want access. So I was surprised because there that we really I really thought we would have many 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 more retail offices. Uh, the Great Recession kind of put that on pause. Then when the economy got better. When you weigh the technology change, and then COVID has changed it all substantially, never to never it no looking back. Uh, we're as they say uh, in Phantom of the Opera, we're past the point of no return. So when you say no looking back, just accelerating that, we've heard that we've heard that in a lot of different sectors or things. But what data can you point to that influences your thinking to where you you say it's just. It's just accelerating. Uh, I can. So, so in the uh, so uh, years ago, if you had forty million dollars worth of deposits and thirty million dollars worth of loans in a retail banking facility, when the saver got so it's called four, six, and eight, the saver got four percent. Prime rate was six. The yield on the bank's portfolio was about eight. That was a spread of four hundred basis points. Okay, four percent, four hundred basis points. Well, today, the spread is three, maybe. It's just a lot of them are sub three. So and then you say, well, what do we need to change in our model to, to be able to cope with this 3% kind of spread? You just lost 100 basis points. So, how do, so what can you do? So do I need to have as many physical locations? What about the people? Well, great people are in a position where the salaries that they uh, command anymore are much higher. So you can't, not only can you not cut those, uh, you have to increase them, but if you uh, can replace people with technology and because it's much more accepted and it's more cost efficient, then the physical locations are tough. If you are a serial acquirer in the banking industry, uh, which means that you're one of the things you do well as you go, by other banks, uh, they will tell you that the model is a cost savings of between 35 and 45%. In the banking industry, there are three places to get those savings. I can either pay the depositors less interest. I can get the customers to pay more on their loans, which they won't do. Uh, the depositors, you start cutting their interest rate, they're going to go to the other bank, so you can't do that either. Uh, you can either lay people off, which is what happens, or and or they close physical locations, and those are that's what they that's that's the model. That's how it works. So you just have to be cognizant of that. And so the idea is, if I don't need three or four physical locations, you could even give the customer some type of tablet. And banks have done this in the past. Uh, you, I, we could I could give you a tablet if I were a bank and not open an office, and it would be cheaper. Uh, for the bank in the long term to just give you a tablet that accesses your bank account. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. 
AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come. Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He's lucky he was lucky he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. They just didn't come to their house. Yeah. And they went to your sister's house. Right. What did it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. Do you know how often people move their accounts? Regular consumers. Uh, no, there's some there's some national studies for people who do that. Yeah, the reason I ask is I'm just thinking about now, even for me personally, or thinking about others or 10, 15 years from now, if the bank technology keeps up or even maybe gets a little bit ahead, there's no need to change because it's not like you're going to go to the physical location and something will irritate you or anything like that. And then I don't know the percentage of people that are actively borrowing money in the United States for their small business or for their own personal consuming needs, but it just seems that into the future, switchover will be even less than what it is. And I could be wrong on this just because you're going to, you just sit and stay put and you don't have to do anything. And there's less variables for a problem. Uh, can be. So, uh, so bill pay, for example, you, if you pay your bills electronically, it's a pain to change banks. Well, you know what somebody figured out how to do? They, they have an app. Yeah. And so <laughs> what they have, they have an app that will now gather up and capture all your bill pay information. And guess what? You can transfer it to the next bank. Right. So uh, I, love, I love free market capitalism because people... Uh, there, there are problems. People come up with so, a solution. Uh, they get paid to provide the solution. And then, you know, the world can be better and more efficient. So, you know, people always ask like, well, you know, why do I want to change banks again? Your favorite banker leaves. Uh, so they, they go somewhere else. So do you want to follow them to another bank? And sometimes say, man, I've followed you three or four places. I'm not going to do that. Uh, however, for people who actively borrow money and have a certain uh, financial services needs, they're constant and ongoing. 
they need help from somebody in order. And the best place to find a provider is somebody that they know and trust. Was starting a bank harder or easier than what you expected? Uh, my frame of reference was that it would be a relatively simple from the standpoint of can you figure out how to make enough loans that will bring in enough income that will pay uh, the bills? Yes. The banking business is a very simple, straightforward business. The regulatory costs are off the chart. The number of things that, that have to go on behind the curtain are uh, incredibly expensive, non-revenue producing, and actually obtrusive for the customer because so much of it has to do with with their information. And part of it is giving your information to the government or a government agency, which is a little scary if you think about it. But the hard part about it was uh, uh, getting the right people in the right culture. That was much more uh, took much more time than I thought that it would, because uh, I'd never I'd never been a CEO of a bank, and 15 years later, culture and processes and how you do things are so important, and that's why customers are a small, nimble, customer oriented financial services uh, institutions over time will be a great place for people to invest their money. There's no doubt in my mind about it. All you need to do is to have a problem, have a really, really, really large institution, try to get an answer to something. Uh, so get in a chat box. You, If you've ever used a chat box. So you're saying there's a vacuum. Oh, yes, there is, because there has to be, uh, to do this, you, you you have to have a different culture. Uh, technology is great. So if you've ever, have you ever gone hunting? So if you've ever gone quail hunting, uh, the, the job of the dog is to find the bird, but you don't give the gun to the dog. Uh, your job is, the, the, the dog's job is to find the birds. That's technology. That's your platform. You, and, the, the, and the shooter, the, the, the hunter, their job is to bag the bird with the gun. So uh, what happens is so often there's artificial intelligence. There's all kinds of great stuff out there. But at the end of the day, if you've got a problem, and you need something, uh, you need to talk to a person. I recent, I sent a chat request. I just tried it one time at a bank. It's not located. Well, part of they have some, they, have, they do have stuff here in Memphis. So I sent uh, something to their chat box to say, here's my question. The next day I got an, an answer said, that's a great question I'll ask. That was on January the 8th. I've never gotten an answer. So you know what I did? What's that? Uh, I just happened to, call, I called a friend who knew somebody and I got a cell phone number from somebody. Uh, I got an answer two days later, just by calling one of the employees of the same institution and say, this is my question. And I got an answer uh, that day. What's that feel like being in your situation, starting a bank, good sized bank in your own hometown, obviously starting a bank, meaning you and the older, other stakeholders involved, but then you're dealing with people in that market and you got people that get ticked off about how something's handled or about this and that. And then all while you're, you've borrowed, you're in the whole 5 million, you know, you're trying to get the bank back to where it needs to be, trying to get this thing established. It just seems like a lot of, a lot of arrows flying all over the place. I just, again, I mean, when you think about people, everybody has a complaint. And in one day, if you visit three to six different 
locations for some type of service, you're going to have a complaint about one, two, maybe three a day. But actually being the, the top boss at the bank, dealing with all the, these capital issues, these regulatory issues, any other dynamics going on, and then also dealing with the, the market at large. What was that like? You have to have great people. We had great people because they cared. The number one thing, uh, uh, people say I'm a really good banker and I understand the business. I'm reasonably adept at it. But the real deal was to have a great culture that would attract people that would try and figure out. Our mantra is trying to figure out how to say yes. That, that was that. It's really that simple and say it with a smile. So it starts with, you know, you got employees that are, that are, that are work on a teller line and people say that, you know, well, that's a job that's kind of dying. It is in a way, but I'm telling you the most compliments I ever got from people almost always were about uh, the people who worked in our retail offices. They were well-trained, pretty well-paid. We took care of them. Uh, If you ask them, they would say that they, they had a, they, they had a good career at Triumph Bank because it's just it's just a mindset if the mindset is well I'm not really too worried about it so if you called me with a complaint as the CEO I was on it <laughs> I mean I've tried to I've found somebody and and we tried to fix it I mean if the customer is unhappy let's let's fix it because it but because if that's not the attitude and you're not willing to have somebody call your cell phone on Saturday afternoon you, you might need to find something else to do for a job. You're saying there's opportunity now within any industry, but as things are more automated, people are trying to hit scale. There's opportunity when you can come in and you do things right and you're going to provide a great service and you can really build up a lot of value very quickly while taking care of people and create a good return for yourself in the process. You hit it on the hit. I think it's, it's, it doesn't matter. So, Again, there's a, a, a uh, there's a, a company, it's a nationwide company, uh, has a red and white logo, uh, and they primarily sell chicken products. And I have never heard anyone complain about poor service from that entity. And there's no telling how many different meals they serve per day. And they have they, the people are well trained, they're well compensated, they work hard. And the mantra of the company is just, you know, we're going to take care of the customer. They pay at the end of the day, the customers pay all the bills and provide the return to the people on the money that the people invested in it. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple deal, and customer acquisition is everything. What do most people not get right when they have a culture? That sucks. Uh, I think what it is, is there, there are three things. We put someone in charge of, it was their job to go find the people uh, that we wanted, the type of people that we wanted them to hire, and we gave them a full reign to do so. What happens sometimes is, you know, I'll walk in as the, the, the boss and say, hey, go hire Bob. Well, maybe... Bob might not have been the best hire or whatever, you know, it's just kind of part. So we turned out our turnover was in single digits the last two years of Triumph Bank because we, we, Catherine Duncan was, she's seen, we made her seen, we promoted her to senior VP. We didn't make her. She earned it. Uh, she earned the title of senior VP and head of human resources. And our world was much better when we did that. She was empowered and authorized. 
So I think that from a cultural standpoint, empowering people and authorizing them to do things are a really big deal. Uh, Secondly, employees come up with incredibly creative solutions. Uh, Sitting, you know, on the second floor of the corporate office is a great thing. It's a lot of fun. But the number of customers that come up and say, hey, uh, have you ever thought about this type of service? I don't necessarily do all that. They don't talk to me, but they sure talk to our folks. So my job is the, it was the, I was the, I was the ringmaster. My deal was to get to work early. I blew the whistle. Uh, I got out of the way because the performers were the employees who took care of the customers. It's a very simple model and you just have to keep training. We got into, we did Enneagram. Oh, nice. What number are you? It's, it's, it's in a pile over here. It's the, you don't remember your number? No, I don't. And I can tell you on the old kind of Myers-Briggs thing that I'm definitely a driver. Not that I'm a dominant person, but but yes, I, I, I'm, I'm very goal-oriented, very task-oriented, and I hate to lose. The Lord allows it to happen frequently to, to keep me in my place, but uh, that's just kind of it. So whatever that is on the Enneagram, I can, I'll tell you what it is later on, but we did that. Uh, if, if I were in a company today, I would take my top 10 producers and I would get them to all take a psychological test. And I would like to see what makes them tick. And I would take a prospective employee and test them and kind of compare, do a compare. I think that would be a very valid thing to do. Uh, and I think from a management standpoint for the future, people, to, you know, I think people just need to be more, you know, collaborative. The idea that you're going to have the 50-year-old bank CEO sitting on the second floor and, you know, banging the desk. That's not me, first of all. But secondly, you need, you need a, a much broader group of people to be able to affect decisions in companies today. I saw in 2010, 157 banks closed that year. I need to be checked on all this, but... It's probably close enough. Yeah, correct. So if very few banks are opening each year and very few banks are closing each year, I assume that what's going to continue to happen in the future is more banks will sell because bigger banks will either want to you know, grow as much as they can internally or acquire other banks and then few banks will be open. So then it's just going to just the people that have market share are just going to continue to own more of it. And then there's going to be less startups in this space. Is that a fair thought? That is exactly what it's been going on for 20 years. Uh, The only difference is the number of people who are going to jump out and go start a new bank are, are very, very, very few. So, if so, what is happening? So add on top of that, that the, if so, let's just say the economy grows 3% a year. Okay. So not a huge number, but that's a, so if the economy is growing 3% a year, the number of providers is actually going down by 10% a year almost. Uh, and there are no new entrants into the marketplace. Then the value of the existing providers who hang on, boy, it should go up, shouldn't it? So that's why some people, they're there for this long haul. That's why I was in it for the long haul, because over time, if you're compounding the money, the the market gets bigger and the number of providers decreases. But the providers who are there are could potentially be much bigger, much more powerful, which they are. Does it get boring? A banking? Yeah. No. Here's what's boring about banking. 
you do the same debits and credits every day. There are thousands. It's just debits, credits, debits, credits. There. That's and that's the hard thing about it because you you know you just have to process the work. We balance the bank to the penny every day. Uh, well, that was just our standard. We just said we're gonna somebody's got to because we're not gonna get out of balance because once you get out of balance and out of whack, you got a problem. So we balanced it every day. The uh, what is really cool about the banking business? Uh, imagine shaking uh, a young couple's hands when they they're buying their first house. Yeah, there's a, a business uh, that uh, there's several of them. I made the first loans that several businesses in Memphis ever had. Emotion really does matter. Connecting with people wherever they were at that stage of life. It's that's the coolest thing on the planet. I mean, it really is to be able to say, man, I financed this home. I, I, I made the first loan to that business. Uh, somebody uh, had an opportunity. I, I've told this story before. Uh, if I get a little emotional, uh, please uh, uh, just, give, give me, just give me a little slack. So there's a guy who owns a restaurant. He came into our office and signed a PPP loan, uh, went back and told his employees that afternoon, today, one or two things was going to happen. I was, the loan was either going to be approved, uh, and I'm going to be here to tell you I'm going to pay your pay your paychecks, or I was going to tell you the loan wasn't approved, and I have to eliminate all of you. True story. Uh, the guy was crying, but it it got approved. Got approved. So that's the stuff you think about or you care about. Yeah. So even in a advanced age, technology, automation, all those things, the guy that stayed that can pay his people or save his restaurant or the people that can buy their first house or the people that can pay for the kids to go to college. Those are the things that you think about. Oh yeah. Every day. Cause banking is a service business. So you have to be in a position where you say, I'm willing to, to serve these people to help them make their goals. And if you look at it that way, I can make mine. And so from a financial standpoint too. So you just, your, your view of the world, I think has to be a little bit different uh, because if you don't look at it from a service standpoint, uh, you can be a financial gear and make the banking business look any way you want it to look. I mean, you can do all different types of stuff, but at the end of the day, it's a people business. You have to have people who care and are going to take care of the people uh, who have a need. And if you can do that, uh, you can, yeah, I think you can be very successful. Is the lack of new banks opening, is that creating any consequences to the average citizen or consumer? Well, I, I think uh, in the long run, yes, because what will happen is if you have no entrant, no new entrants into a market, and if the market share grows at a slower pace than the absorption of, of existing players, i.e. 10% of the providers go away, the economy's only grown at three, then uh, how do you get innovation? How do you get new people? How do you get young people excited about going into uh, those respective businesses? I'm telling you, it's a, if you think about it from the long term, it, it hurts our economy uh, potentially. But a lot of the things that you think about, the bank doesn't have to be four physical offices and drive-through windows and all that other stuff. They're whole new models. Uh, there's a model out there. It's great. Uh, there's a bank in South Florida that just started. Digital only. It's all they do. Like a digital only newspaper. Yes. So is it a regulatory issue 
Uh, partly, it, it can be regulatory. The, the regulatory world goes at uh, a snail's pace sometimes, whereas technology goes as fast as, as the uh, engine can produce power. That's kind of a mismatch in a way. When did selling come into the picture for the bank? We talked all the time as a board, and you have to, because if you have a fiduciary responsibility to say, what are we going to do with the stockholders' money? And, and we had a majority owner, and, and the, they, the, they said we should explore the idea of potentially selling the bank. A little bit happened on that, not much, but what really happened was uh, somebody walked up one day and just said, hey, we like what you're doing. Uh, so you just, and when you need to sell something, unfortunately, is when somebody wants to buy it. So we, we'd been around for 15 years and it was just, it seemed to be a, a good time to consider doing it. Uh, and so it all worked out. You know, the acquire, our acquire Simmons First National Corporation, good people, good bank. Uh, they, they, they make a lot of acquisitions. And so from their standpoint, they wanted to buy Landmark and Triumph. Uh, so that they could be a $2 billion bank in Memphis, Tennessee. That's their, their size, uh, which is a, a good size. You know, it's a, it's a good position for them to be in. How do you know when to quit? And how do you know when to keep going when you have absolutely no clue if things are going to work? For me, uh, it was pretty simple. I think you have to know what the market is and what the landscape is, number one. And there's no perfect knowledge out there to be able to acquire that. Secondly, does your business have enough size relative to the market to be able to compete effectively? And thirdly, you know, are the returns such that you can make a reasonable return on the money that's invested? Uh, And as long as you can, there's no reason to stop. And then personally, for me, uh, the plan that I was going to, well, I had the plan. I already it just, we didn't institute it because of the sale, but was to figure out how to make a lateral to uh, the other people at our company. So you just have to say, you know, I, I, in five years, where would I like for this thing to be? And what, what that means for me is that three or four or five or six people, somebody's got my job. Uh, and and they've been trained to do that. I've trained two or three very key people uh, in in our organization. I did it personally. Wait, how how did that come into play? You you're I'm talking about knowing if you're going to go out of business. Oh, go out of business? You run out of cash. Uh, that's the. But but you were fully committed, so you were either going to go bankrupt or you were going to turn the corner. There were no options other than that. It had to be successful. So we just. You know, you just you just wake up every morning early, and you. We worked a lot of hours. I mean, I worked fifty plus hours a week for years in a row uh, because that's what I had to do. But it was okay. You know, if you like what you do, you have enough confidence in what you're doing, and you like the people that you're doing it with. It's hey, say it. It's not really work. The idea of having a a a, a bank in Memphis, Tennessee that I could have been part of uh, with a great group of bank directors and wonderful employees uh, who knew what they were doing, great at customer service. Uh, wow, that's something to say, you know, I did that. So for me, it wasn't about saying that I was something. Oh, so for example, I'll give an example. Uh, I was uh, in two in 2020, 
I was the inside Memphis business CEO of the year for a certain size bank. I, I can tell you, I stood up on the podium and I meant it when I said it. Uh, the only reason I stood up at that podium to be able to accept that that award was because of the people who worked every single day at the bank. Had so uh, it, it's for it's really their award, not mine, because I just came up with the vision. Again, I like to say I'm I'm the guy out there. Uh, I'm the ringleader. Uh, I just blow the whistle. I get out of the way because the performers every day are the employees who take care of the customers. And you celebrate with the customers. It's a big deal for people to be able to do something. So you just, otherwise, I can tell you when we would have known when we could have went to quit. If we'd lost $5 million, I couldn't raise another dime of equity and nobody had any confidence I was going to make it, then we probably would have had to have figured out how to sell it. I was very confident in the plan. I was confident in the people uh, that they could pull it off. What have you learned about running a bank with the people in it internally, but then also with shareholders and people that could be in the position to be a shareholder had to have either owned their own company or amassed wealth in a certain way to be in the position to be a part of that. So people with strong personalities because they've run their own companies. And then obviously you being the CEO and then you also being, you know, having skin in the game as well, but then all the people within the company, what from an operational standpoint can you say to any type of even public company, but private company where you're, you're maintaining that tension or that balance? Is there anything that you've learned that's been instrumental to you from that standpoint? You can't do it on your own. If you think about how uh, people are wired generally, this is, I, I'm going to do this and I can do it on my own. And you, you can start it on your own, but you can't sustain it on your own because then it will only be uh, as far as you can go is only as far as you can throw the ball, so to speak. But if you get enough people together and get a great team of people, then you I say you hire the right people, get the right people on the bus. There are a lot of great sayings that go with that. But people have to be able to buy in to what you're talking about doing. So we had something that was very specific. It was really weird uh, for a bank. We created, I created a document. It's called the Triumph Way. And what it is, is that this is how we do it. And so it, it, I hate to say it was pretty straightforward, but maybe what, what one of the things we found, well, there are certain customers that won't fit this criteria. So let's not spend any time with them because they're, it's just not going to work potentially. Let's spend the time that we need to on the customers that we know will fit our parameters and we can deliver for them. And then you go through this process and that limits your growth, to be quite frank. That's one of the things that you run into is your company might be a little smaller it, in the long run, it'll be a lot more profitable. And I think it'll be a lot more fun place to work at the end of the day. Did you ever think you were going to be run your own bank or run a bank that you had skin in the game in at any point in your life? Oh, yes. So uh, one of the little known facts, somebody brought this up the other day, and it's true. My original career goals, I wanted to be president of a bank when I was 35 years old. By when you were 35? Mm -hmm. It didn't work. Yeah. It took me to 50. It took me 15 years, but that's okay. I needed to learn more, obviously. Uh, and there's probably a certain maturity level that I need to gain, needed to gain. And there was probably some industry experience. Plus, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, 
there's a certain level of maturity that you need as a, a senior slash executive person uh, involved in a bank that you need to learn how to deal with reg- regulators, uh, stockholders, and whatever else. And so it, it's just, there was probably a little bit of, of polishing that I needed. The Lord generally provides that, as you know, he knock, knocks the rough edges off, and that's sometimes painful, mm-hmm. uh, but that's okay. Uh, it, it's, just part, it's just part of the process. As I told somebody not long ago, I, I relish almost every single day of the uh, 15 years of, of Triumph Bank. Really do good, bad, and different. It was it was an honor to have the job, and it was great to work with the people. We had a fabulous group of people. How do you see things evolving over the next ten to fifteen years from a finance standpoint in this way? Uh, just in in general, in financial markets, in banking, in banking. Okay, so in in banking, there will be more and more technology. Uh, there will be less and less uh, new banks. The consolidation will continue. To move forward, and what I mean by that is that people, banks that go that almost have a business line of acquiring other banks, will continue to do so. There's nothing wrong with that. The only issue that 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 you have with that is is that if you're always trying to gain a customer that came in on somebody else's culture, how do you as you get bigger, how do you assimilate all these? disparate cultures and processes together into one entity. I think that would be very difficult to do. Uh, That would not be something that would appeal to me because there's a B side to it. Part of the reason for this consolidation is technology cost. Everybody wants to be more technology, more technology, more technology. The only way you can pay for that is to acquire more assets. uh, And if you can't self-generate them, you have to buy them. And the only way you can afford to buy them is to, is to unfortunately get rid of 35 to 45% of the expense base of the acquired institution and substitute uh, technology costs for those expenses, which means there should be less and less. Uh, uh, it's just a matter because you're trying to retain a model with all these physical offices, which I don't think are going to be anywhere near as important in the future uh, as they have been in the past. So I think this all digital uh, type of platform, it's, it's, it's intriguing how you put it together is, is, is will be fun. And it would, uh, for the right people and right uh, groups of folks to be able to put uh, a team, whoever can put a team together to do that, uh, I think long-term will be big winners in the banking business. So you're saying a platform that provides the experience and speed but also as much of a human touch as you can by having a strong service Absolutely. bank. Absolutely. If you were, let's say, talking to a grandkid, if you had one, what areas from a professional standpoint, either nonprofit or for-profit, what spaces do you feel like will be robust uh, moving into the future? If they're not already now, what will be? Or if they are now, what even more so? Uh, I, I think the one of the things that's great about the banking industry I think the key for going forward for all industries is to find out what can be the newest way to distribute goods and services 
over the internet. You know, the internet is great. The communication, the amount of knowledge. I wish my dad were still alive. Dad, 35 years ago, he would have loved this. The ability to sit down and say, I want to know something. What's the favorite food in the Ukraine? I mean, you can just Google that and it pops up, you know, that would just blow my, I would have blown my dad away. He, he had such a high intellect. I think the real thing to do is to find the people who are the futurists and figure out how to talk to a group of people like that. So the, if the coolest thing on the planet is digital music, let's say, uh, you know, 25 years ago, uh, the idea that you had a Walkman was just, whoa, that was the coolest thing in the world. That is, uh, you, you can't even find those things in, in uh, uh, the Goodwill store anymore. Uh, it, they, they just don't. So that, that their whole thing. So people who can, if you can figure out how to interface with people who are doing that, how to find them, how to get a relationship with them, I think is one of the keys uh, for business. The other, I will just tell you again, can't say it enough times, basic customer service and human relations. Uh, the worst thing in the world is to go to a really nice restaurant. Pay a lot of money, taking it's your anniversary, do whatever. You can have the greatest meal on the planet. But if the person at the front desk who's serving the first, if they if they've had a bad day and whatever, it takes away from your entire experience. Go buy a car. Man, what if somebody was sullen, uh, had a bad day, they had a a, a, a dark personality, or whatever else? You got to write check for 60 grand to go buy a new car anymore. That's not a good experience, is it? So people who can can coach, train, mentor, and retain people who have good outlooks on life, who can who can be trained in, in the in the particular industry, I think will be the big winners with the application of the correct technology. I, I think that's just that is such a winning combo for the future. Uh, it's a no-brainer. How you do it, very difficult. You're going to have to go through a few people sometimes to find the right ones. But that's just, you may need to, to, to realize that, but that's okay. If you were to start a bank again, what would you do differently? And what would you do the same? One of the things I found was that people who are not willing to buy into your culture probably needed to find a place different to work. You know, it's just, there's just no substitute for people being on the same page, same team. Uh, there's, there's a camaraderie that we had. We covered everybody's backs. I've been in the, the ER with people who've got kids that are, they think are going to pass away. My wife had brain surgery, the outpouring of the employees, the meals, everything else. I, I was blown away. We covered everybody, everybody covered everybody's back. Uh, so you have to have a culture that looks like that. And so that's what I would do. I would emphasize and keep moving forward. Uh, the things that I wouldn't do, uh, I would not hang on to some functions as long as I did. You should delegate everything you possibly can, not because it's a matter of importance. It's a matter of competence. They're just people at the bank who knew more things uh, and they did them better than I did. And so you should learn how to do that. Uh, and then the last thing is, uh, you know, I, initially uh, I was so focused and I didn't listen well. I think I listened much better at the end. And I think that was it. I think I have empathy. I think I've always been a fairly empathetic person. I didn't always show that because I was just, we just had to make up that $5 million. 
And so every day you just come in and you just punch and counterpunch. And uh, I think I learned that we probably could have maybe made it up easier a little, a little quicker, maybe if I had, had, had given up certain things, but I just thought I could do it better sometimes. And that's one of my failings in life, unfortunately. Would you go through all that again? Oh, yes. There's no doubt. To do a startup bank today? Uh-uh. No. Because the economics of it, to, to, to find all of a sudden you're in a $5 million deficit uh, position is hard. But if you told me that it was an all digital platform or something with a little bit different, eh, you might you might be able to twist my arm a little bit. But, you know, I, I've gotten older in my ability to get to work you know, before sunrise, uh, meet with customers, do all the administrative stuff that you have to talk to the regulators, be prepared for your board meeting, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's, it's a different game when someone is my age as opposed to 50. What's it like being at this stage of life and being a part of the bank, being, a, again, skinning the game on the bank, selling the bank, and then not having anything to do? Is that weird? <laughs> Uh, it is. Uh, the, the lack of routine uh, is really weird. Uh, some days like today, quite frankly, uh, uh, I have had a ton of stuff to do. I have a, a very full week next week uh, on the front end of it, the back end of it, not so much. So uh, I, there's some things I'm involved in that I, I have a passion for, and you know, I, I try and put some stuff together. And it, it's just different. I miss the people uh, and the customers. I miss the people side of it. I still uh, have several accounts uh, at Simmons Bank, and so I have uh, a tie to the institution. I'm still a a fairly large stockholder, so I can kind of keep my head in the game a little bit. Uh, uh, And uh, customers call me every once in a while just to see how I'm doing. But it's a different deal. I've heard people talk about, you know, planning to have a plan to to what you're going to do in a retirement-type environment. For me, because I – uh, it came faster and I was unprepared because I did not continue on with Simmons despite they, they had offered for me to stay on for a while. I had a couple offers to do for different durations, but it just, it, it's their company. And, and so I thought the best thing to do was just to go ahead and just say, Hey, it's y'all's company. And it's a good time. To, it was a good time to step back. And so a step. The problem with stepping back is that you're removed and you don't really necessarily. You're not in the game, and being in the game means that that you're with the people uh, and the customers, and they call you, they need help, they ask you for advice or whatever. So, the good side about it is, I guess, spend more time with my family, which has been good. I've enjoyed that part of it, and I've gotten to play a little more golf. So that's uh, that's all good. But the, at the end of the day, I like you know if you like what you do and you like who you do it with, it's not really work. I don't know the statistic of people that want to actually take over something from scratch, but it's you know it's just incredibly uncomfortable, and I can't imagine trying to start a bank, quitting your job at fifty putting everything you got on the line, not knowing exactly how the rest of that capital will happen and to go all in and then to navigate these things that you're talking about. But hopefully that comes across clear in this interview. There's a sense, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's what other word can I use? Hell, that that sounds like for an extended period of time, even though I know you liked your people, you liked the bank, you're proud of what you built 
But I'm just thinking about going into each breakfast meeting, each lunch meeting, knowing the deficit, trying to get what you need, trying to tell the story, being okay with rejection, going back, wondering if this person, <laughs> did they quit? Or are you hiring this person? I mean, those are everything. Those are all these things that any business owner knows. But just to do that at 50, it's wild. And it's lonely when you don't really know what the outcomes are going to be. You know, everybody wants to be presented in society in a certain way. Or at the end of the day, a lot of people only want security in a certain way. But to make that choice or to feel that calling, however you want to frame it, to put yourself in a situation that's unpredictable or risky or whatever, you just realize how, how many of you actually want to go through it. And then also the people that go through it and they don't have the it doesn't have the story. The story doesn't end the way that we're talking about here all the time. Does that make sense? It does. At the end of the day, you got to have the want tos. And if you don't want, as we, I've told people for years, if you don't have the want tos, don't do this because you just won't make the sacrifice from time to time that you have to make. You might miss a ball game. You're going to miss the school play. You're going to miss some stuff because that's just kind of what – so balancing that, I think, is really the, the, the real trick. It wasn't that it was there, but, but I always wanted to do this. And you, you don't get a lot of shots in life to be. How many times have there are just not many bank CEO jobs that just pop up? You know, we had, a, we had a great board. They were very supportive. We raised the money. You know, people knew us. And, you know, I, I think they thought they were going to make a whole bunch of money. And, and the, the money part was not at the multiples that it had been in other banks. I will tell you this. I can tell you this uh, unequivocally. The bank that we, that we created with all the employees on the board was a much better bank than the other ones that sold. I promise you that. I know them all. We were, we were from a, a standpoint of regulatory ratings the way that we conducted ourselves, the whole thing, top to bottom, uh, our risk profile, we were better. And we created a better a better widget, just to be quite frank. I had a longer period of time to do it. That was a piece of it. But we just said, we want to do, we want to do this. We want to be the best. And I, I think if you want to be the best, that's just how it is. You know, if you play golf, the whole question comes down to, can you hit the shot that you need to hit when you need to hit it? And so... Uh, and you know what the percentage of times that people, unless you're Tiger Woods, the, to hit the shot you need to hit when you need to hit it. Oh, I think 70% of the time, even professional golfers don't hit the shot they're looking for. So it, you just have to discipline yourself and just say, there's a humility factor too, the, just to be quite frank. Hell, I cried at home. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. There were times that I just said, man, I'm gonna, this thing's going to fail. Uh, I wouldn't worry about me failing. I can get a job. That's, that wasn't the deal. But I couldn't fail the people that invested the money in the deal, and I couldn't fail the people that I worked with every day. They put stuff on the line, too. I mean, we had a young lady. I mean, you know, she just she quit her job. <laughs> and she one of our first 14 employees. You know, she took some risk, too, and I, I got I to gotta back it up. The scary thing is that, you know, people who knew me and followed me was one thing. The scary thing is people who didn't know me and followed me because that's even they're you know, they're out there, too. And I got to put and I just go ahead and I just I just the 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 I, I don't have a fear of failure, but, you know, you're going to fail at certain things. And so you just use it as a learning experience and go on. I think the, that's just that's the best you can do. 
And, you know, I trained all my life for an opportunity. So uh, I was just, I just, you know, I was, I was very blessed to uh, have had the opportunity and uh, loved the people, loved what I was able to do. And, you know, uh, just kind of go from there. That's what, I'm, that's what makes it a little hard to sit at home because it's kind of like, man, I'm not there doing whatever we're going to do. But that's a whole nother story today. But it is, that's the part I miss was that being in the game. What do you think people want at the end of the day? I mean, you have unique insights into lots of different types of people, different socioeconomic levels, different races, but you get a wide swath of people. At the end of the day, what do you feel like people want? I think they want an affirmation. I think they want a, a, I'll get, do you mind, can I get biblical for a second? Do whatever you want. Okay. So if you think about what, what humans are, humans are image bearers of our creator. So God created us in his image. And so, well, I think what people are looking for, I think there's a, uh, uh, there's a little hole inside all of us. And I think that the little hole is what the Lord's decided. The Lord made us for that little hole to be filled by him. I think, but since we live in a, we've got this sinful fallen world we live in, I think people are looking for affirmation. I think that they're looking for something that says, I'm valuable. I'm important. Uh, and, and you know, a lot of people want to be important or whatever, and, and I'm the least of the important people on the planet. But everybody wants to feel important. And they, want, they, they need to be, I think they want to feel important. I think they want to be affirmed. And in a work situation, I truly believe that if you can, that if you can clearly show somebody, this is what, this is what we are, this is where we're going. And this is your piece of this pie that we got to bake every day. Then boy, I tell you, you can, if you can get enough people together and get them going, get them going in the same direction, doing something, that's a pretty darn good deal, isn't it? That'd be that that'd be a powerhouse thing. Whether you're a, a company, a, a church, a, a not-for-profit, a city, uh, whatever it is, man, you get everybody going in the same going in the same place. That's a pretty big deal, and you can only do that, as I have found by by making a lot of mistakes. Is everybody needs to to be together, understand the mission, and this is how we're going to do it. And this is your and this is this is how you contribute to that. You talked about earlier, you said not everybody has the want to. What makes somebody have the want to that would want to endure that? You have to make yourself a servant to a plan in a group of others. And if you can do that to say, this is the goal, and the goal is we're going to get to $300 million in earning assets in five years, and this is how we're going to do it, then the people who don't understand don't want to because they really are more interested in, I just want to do a little bit or, you know, I'm more interested. I, I tried to hire a guy one time uh, and he just said, man, I, I don't know if I can work for a startup bank. Uh, you know, I, I leave at five. I get there at 830. It, it, they're incredible at what they do, but they weren't going to do any more. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they didn't see that that was what they wanted to do because they were very comfortable where they were. And unless the other piece of it is unless you're willing to get outside your comfort zone, you're not going to do that. So you just say, man, uh, this is what I want to do. Uh, I'm willing to sacrifice to get there. Uh, I used to play a little bit of competitive golf, you know, years ago, wish my attitude and maturity had been better. But, you know, to do that, you know, you only, all you got to do is hit five, 600 practice balls a day. 
<laughs> you know, and and just say, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And it's it's lonely. It's 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 kind of it's August. It's hot. Uh, but if that's what you want to do, that's what you're going to do. So I, I wish I knew how what, what what how people were wired. But I think inside everybody has a something that they want to do. And I think that if they could figure out how to how to figure out a, a rational way to figure out how to achieve those particular goals, I think I think. Uh, I think their lives could be a lot better. And in the end, what I didn't want to do, quite frankly, I I would have rather have been crushed and said that I failed and I ended up doing something else than to say, man, I wish I, you know, I should have, could have, would have. Heck yeah. And that just, uh, I'd rather go for it and, and whatever. Every once in a while, so I, I use a lot of golf analogies. So we have uh, this uh, competition. It's like a Ryder Cup. And at the end of the day, and I tell, I, I've never been a team captain, and I'm glad because it's too much work uh, to be a team captain. But was what I tell all of them, I said, give me the anchor match. I'll take it every time. It's not going to bother me. I don't care if there are 200 people sitting around. They've all had a bunch of drinks, and they're yelling at you and whatever. Those things don't bother me anymore uh, because uh, I can stand up there, and I'm happy to do it. In fact, quite frankly, I like the challenge. <laughs> uh, I do. I like the challenge. It's fun. And, 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 and it's okay. You have to be, sometimes you have, so you're, uh, I think some ways we're wired very similarly. We're very hard headed in some ways. Uh, well, you are because you just say, I'm, I, I think I can do this. And it doesn't matter whatever chatter's going on. It doesn't matter that people, I'm sorry to say it this way, and I don't mean to sound uncaring, but you're going to do this interview today because that's something that's important for your, that you want to do. And I'm sorry that it seems like Russia is going to invade Ukraine today, but that didn't stop you from doing this today. You're going to do what you got to do. And so, uh, you know, the power went out. We had to reschedule whatever I you know, we had illness and blah, 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 blah. But we were committed to the idea that we're going to do this thing. And it took a couple of times. Well, that's okay. I'm not the only person you can interview. So you're going to find somebody else to interview if there was another time earlier that was more convenient for that person. So you just have to have a certain, there's just, there's just a certain level of determination you have to have. I think you can do it with grace. Uh, I think you can do it with a smile on your face. Uh, but but you're just not going to quit. Uh, I used to tell people I'm too dumb to quit, and I am, just because uh, just uh, that that just didn't sound palatable to me. That sounded so just didn't sound good. Last question I got. You and I were friends, so if you're listening to this, that hadn't become clear earlier. I mean, I know a lot of the people that I interview on this podcast, but Will and I, I know him probably better than anybody. But uh, we were having a drink one time, and uh, we were at a restaurant, and you said, you better believe it, if I started a bank again, or I was running a bank again, I'd be walking up to that bar and going up to every single person at that bar and telling them about my bank and that I think they should bank there. Do you remember, is that what you said? I do. Yeah, it's pretty close. What's the sense of willingness to put yourself out there at any age, at any point in one's life, regardless of where they're at from a professional standpoint or societal hierarchical standpoint that you've seen or that you have in yourself to where doing whatever it takes with any situation to not leave any gas left in the tank. Gosh, 
uh, part of it comes from experience. Uh, so let's go back to, to where we're, if there were 10 people in a bar and they, I'm only going to get one out of the 10. I think you have to have this realistic idea that nine of them aren't going to care because they're not at the bank. They're, they're not at the bar to buy banking services. Okay. But every once in a while, you might find somebody said, man, I appreciate it. Uh, the reason why I know that you can win is part of it is just a numbers game. If you get there a little earlier and you stay a little bit later, if you're in sales, you need to make the extra two calls a day because I know my competitors aren't doing it. I know what the service level is at every competitive bank. There's some really good bankers. They work at different banks. There's some great institutions, but man, I always kept thinking, you know, if you really would like to be taken care of, you need somebody to take care of, and you want to have that experience where it's kind of like somebody really appreciated uh, me and my business. Uh, I had it. If you're, it was a bank, you know, if you're looking for a lawnmower, I was the wrong guy. Uh, but, but, but man, if you want a bank, cause I knew you were going to get taken care of because I knew how to help control the outcome. And because of the outcome wasn't that you had that a customer had with someone, uh, if it got back to me, we didn't beat people up, but we said, Hey, you could have handled this one differently. And here's a, here's a way to do that. You just, it's, it, it's just, I've learned so much more about organizations and how people relate to them and how they relate to uh, different things that it's, uh, I, you know, I didn't know one-tenth when I started what I know today. And, uh, you know, uh, if I started one again, there are a lot of things I would do differently. You'd have to. Uh, I'm older. They're older. What are, how am I going to deal with a 25-year-old? Probably different than when, uh, than I would deal with a 55-year-old. Or a 40-year-old. So it's all, you just have to, that's why the Enneagram thing is kind of weird uh, to do. But when you really can have a greater understanding of what what uh, drives people, so to speak, or what, 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 what their, what's their inner, what's their, what's their stuff on the inside, and they can be great contributing people, but they don't necessarily have to approach the situation the same way you would as long as they get it done. So I think that would be that to me that that's really the bigger key. And that that's really one of the things I've, I've learned. That's very, very helpful because I think there's a lot of us today, thirties and forties where you're just, you're scared of losing or you're scared of losing things that you might have. And I think it's a beautiful story about risk, endurance, and, and obviously the outcome is excellent, but how you chose or it was in it was in your cards to do that at 50 when a lot of people would never even think about doing it. I think that's it. Thank you. This has been awesome. Oh, thank you. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I want to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. 
Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.